It has been an incredibly wrenching and busy week in the news. Natural disasters, healthcare. But I want to take you back for a minute to 1986 and a group of senators meeting with President Ronald Reagan at the White House. And one of them happened to be six foot five and a former forward for the New York Knicks. In 86, we had a meeting at the White House. And I said, Mr. President, uh, we're both for tax reform. You're for tax reform because when you were an actor, you paid a 90% marginal tax rate. And I'm for tax reform because a professional basketball player, I was a depreciable asset. That's former Senator Bill Bradley, who was instrumental in passing sweeping tax reform that year. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And that story matters because tax reform is a hot topic in Washington again, and one of the biggest ways that what Congress does touches everybody's life. But we're going to start with nuclear geopolitics. This week, President Trump said he was putting stiffer economic sanctions in place against North Korea. That came after he spoke at the United Nations, saying he would, quote, totally destroy North Korea if its nuclear program threatened the U.S. or its allies. But the North Korean economy and what sanctions do to it can be really hard to understand. So we brought on Scott Snyder, who runs the program on U.S.-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I was struck. uh, North Korea's economy grew by 3.9 percent in 2016. That's actually, you know, pretty decent economic growth. Where did that growth come from? The current leadership uh, is embracing markets and, uh, in fact, is establishing more channels of interaction economically with the outside world, even despite the efforts by the international community to put sanctions on North Korea. Kim Jong-un is moving more toward a market economy than his father, his grandfather. What does that look like on the ground? Essentially, across North Korea at this point, there are locations that look like kind of early versions of North Korea's Walmart, where you can go in and go to different stalls and buy and sell whatever you need. The problem, of course, is that uh, those traders are also subject to threats, intimidation, and needs to pay bribes to security. And also the market in North Korea is rife with corruption. So it's really a kind of frontier-style predatory market economy rather than anything where there's a level playing field that regulates capitalist exchange in North Korea. Yeah, I mean, how does that work with sanctions that have been placed on North Korea? Well, we have to understand that until last year, uh, the sanctions were really focused on particular items that could be used for North Korea's nuclear and missile programs. Only in the past year has the UN begun to impose sectoral sanctions on North Korean exports, which are designed to reduce North Korea's access to foreign currency. Do we have a sense of how international community sanctions play out in the average North Korean's life? So far, I'm not sure that the sanctions have really had that much of an impact on the average mm-hmm. North Korean. The most recent resolutions by the UN Security Council may change that because uh, we now see bans on fishery exports and textile exports, which are major sources of foreign exchange. Where do those North Korean exports go? North Korean exports have primarily been sold to China. One thing that's really interesting, over the course of the past eight months, the UN Security Council has uh, put a cap on North Korean exports of coal to China. And the latest report shows 
that as a result, North Korea tried to diversify its coal exports to states like Vietnam and Malaysia as a way of getting around that cap. Is it working for them? Well, I think basically with regard to the UN Security Council sanctions, what we're really doing is playing a game of whack-a-mole with North Korea. For every sanction that is introduced, the North Koreans try to find some kind of sanctions evasion measure as a way of trying to keep themselves plugged into the global economy. How does China figure into this picture? Well, China is North Korea's main supplier of goods. Uh, They're essentially the umbilical cord to the international economy uh, for North Korea. North Koreans use Chinese front companies and Chinese partners uh, as the main instruments by which they get the goods that they need uh, in order to build their nuclear program or in order to get food and fuel to uh, help uh, their own citizenry. Well, I guess that sort of raises the question, do sanctions work? I think sanctions can be a source of pressure, but they're not going to work in and of themselves. What language then, if sort of the, the language of economics is not an effective one, what language do they listen to, in your opinion? Well, The opening offer that the regime has put forward is that they want the United States to abandon its hostile policy toward North Korea. It's just that the approach that they're using in order to send that message is quite muddled. And also there's a lot of distrust based on North Korea's past track record. Scott Snyder, Senior Fellow for Korea Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of South Korea at the Crossroads. Thank you so much. Thank you. Germans are going to the polls this weekend. The election comes as Europe is still trying to sort out what happens as the UK moves toward Brexit. The negotiations haven't exactly been smooth sailing. There have been angry exchanges between British and EU negotiators and stories that European cities like Frankfurt may lure London's financial businesses. But as Marketplace's Stephen Beard reports from Frankfurt, not everyone there is thrilled at the idea of a bunch of bankers coming to town. In a cosy little restaurant on the edge of the financial district, the young owner, Louise Hupfner, makes herself a cup of coffee and relaxes after the lunchtime rush. Louise is rather pleased with herself. She took a gamble opening her restaurant a year ago. Now she believes it'll pay off, thanks to Brexit. I think uh, for me it will increase the demand, actually. More people, more business, more money. The Brexit will be good for us. No one knows for sure how many bankers will flee London after Brexit and how many will end up here. 10,000, say the Frankfurt authorities. Some say it could be 50,000. Two blocks away from Louise's restaurant, another local business is quietly gearing up for the influx. Welcome to our Frankfurt office. I can show um, you here some some interesting properties. Olivier Peters owns the Sotheby's real estate franchise in this city, selling high-end properties to the very well-heeled. This is now one of the most expensive properties we are currently offering. It's a beautiful villa for 4.9 million euros. Cheap. By London standards, the same mansion in the British capital would cost three times as much, but Olivier says Frankfurt prices are rising. We have sold some villas where we were of the opinion that this may be uh, 10 to 15 percent overpriced, but we still got them sold quite quickly. Because of Brexit? We cannot answer for sure, but it went much quicker than, than before Brexit. 
No sales yet to London-based bankers, but just the prospect of at least 10,000 rich newcomers arriving in the city appears to be pushing up prices. Deutsche Bank, whose twin towers I can see on the skyline, reckons that Frankfurt property overall is up 11% since the Brexit process began. And that's worrying some local residents. People who live now in Frankfurt, they fear very strong that the prices will go up and up here and they have no chance anymore to live in Frankfurt here. Festus Meyer, a middle-aged office worker, says there's already an acute housing shortage here. Frankfurters of modest means will be forced out of this city and it'll become more exclusive. We'll change the atmosphere, we'll change here some parts of the city of Frankfurt here. And the gentrification here will start... Gentrification. The gentrification. Yeah, they don't like it uh, too much, general public here. Yeah. And here's his vision of hell. This broad avenue in the centre of Frankfurt, Europa Alley, is a likely destination for the incomers. Luxury apartment blocks and shops have been springing up here for more than five years. Several hundred people already live here, but it doesn't look or feel like a community. Tobias Schmitz of local housing campaign group MHM. We don't see many people around here. It's pretty grey and it's sterile. No life at all. It's, It's dead. It's like a ghost town. He claims the financial workers who live here only use the place to crash at the end of the day. They have no interest in putting down roots. It's a very fast business. People want to make money in a few years and then move somewhere else. He'd prefer the Brexit bankers went to Paris instead. But on the other side of town, not far from the European Central Bank, I met two students, Robin Ladvig and Saman Danaday, would be happy to see the fleeing bankers rolling into town. With more bankers coming in, there will be higher income of taxes. That will also improve not only Frankfurt, but the whole region. My comment on all the bankers is come over here, you're welcome. (laughs) The more, the merrier. Yeah, the more, the merrier, yeah. But it must be said, those two students are studying finance. In Frankfurt, I'm Stephen Beard for Marketplace. Numbers are all around us, in the news, the financial press, everywhere. So each week we check in on the numbers behind the headlines. And to help, we have Marketplace's digital producer, Tony Wagner, and the Dinner Party Downloads, Christina Lopez. Tony, over to you. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 1.1 billion. That's about how many dollars the National Weather Service has in its yearly budget. The weather service in the U.S. is a combination of government-run infrastructure and private forecasting. The total cost for each taxpayer to get all the info they need about storms is about $3.45 per year, 2100 That's how many flights European budget airline Ryanair has canceled during a six-week period in September and October. Ryanair apologized to lots of angry would-be passengers, saying it accidentally scheduled too many pilots for vacations. The mistake isn't free to fix. Between refunds, rescheduling, and pilot bonus, Ryanair is losing about $30 million. 8675309. You know that phone number from the classic Tommy Two-Tone song. It peaked at number four on the Billboard charts, and it was the highest charting phone number song until last week. Logic's track 1-800-273-8255 just passed it, rising to number three. And unlike 8675309, this one's worth memorizing. It's the suicide hotline.
There is a lot to talk about when you're looking for a job. And last week on the show, our regular contributor, Allison Green from Ask a Manager, answered your questions about job searches. Well, you had so many questions after that segment aired that we brought her back on to follow up. Allison, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I want to jump in with this question from a listener. Her name is Selena, and this is what she wrote. Several years ago, six to be exact, my husband and I filed for bankruptcy. My husband was in commercial insurance, and when the economy took a downward spiral in 2008, so did his career. When a credit and background check are required during the interview process, what should I say? I've always worked in the banking industry, but the financial institution I currently work at is closing, and now I'm worried about getting a job. Yeah, this is a tough one. What do you, what do, you do if a credit check or something like that is required. Yeah. And especially because she works in banking, they may do a credit check. I'd say be proactive about explaining it. A lot of people have bad luck that affects their finances, especially if they've gone through layoffs or medical bills. Employers know that. If you explain it up front and give them the context, it's probably not going to be an issue. When employers do credit checks for positions that work with money, they're looking for a pattern of irresponsibility with money, or with some positions, signs that you're in such deep debt that you could be a risk for embezzlement, for instance. If you're worried that something might come up that will cause a problem, explain it ahead of time so they have context for what they see, and it will almost Mm. always go better that way. All right. We've got a sort of a complex question for number two uh, from Kevin Schoonover, so I'm going to give you this one. I've been searching for a new position for over a year. I was director of engineering for a large company for 16 years. I'm currently 56 years old, and this is the first time I've been unemployed since the age of 12. When I was a hiring manager, many of my best hires came in through employee referrals. When someone in my network champions my resume into recruiting for a position, recruiting seems to be offended that my contact is trying to do their job. How can I best use my network? Also, when I've gotten interviews for positions at a lower level than director, the interview questions revolve around why I would accept a lesser position. What's the best way to not appear to be overqualified? Because I actually want to take this one in two parts. Um, What's the best way to use your network in a job search? Yes. I mean, good recruiting departments do welcome good referrals. So if he's getting the sense that they're kind of bristling at it, it's possible that he's run into some not great recruiters. It's Mm. possible that his contacts are referring him to jobs where he's not the strongest match with what the employer is looking for or where other people just happen to be stronger matches. But in general... It's smart to use your network to find out about job openings, to get introductions to people at companies where you're interested in working, to vouch for you to their own contacts if you're applying for a job where they have a connection to that hiring manager. The thing that that is less common for people to realize they can do with their network is to use it to just get background information. You know, this is what it's like to work at this company. This hiring manager is great, and this one is to be avoided at all costs. This company puts a, a high emphasis on trait X or skill Y, so really play it up, that kind of thing. And to this other point, this idea of maybe taking a job that you feel is below your skill level or, you know, if you've been stalled in the job search for a while, what what do you do with that potential mismatch or questions about it? It's definitely true that hiring managers worry about hiring someone who might be overqualified. The worry is that you'll be bored 
or you'll neglect the less glamorous pieces of the job and focus too much on things that interest you more but aren't so core to the role. So I think if you're applying for a job that's a bit lower level than what you've done in the past, you just need to explain why those things won't be true for you. And you need to explain it in a believable way. So you want to talk about, for example, why you're really excited about this job and why you're not looking for something with more responsibility. So maybe it's that you know from having more more responsibility in the past that you're happier when you're not managing a team. Our last question uh, is one that came in uh, on tape to the Marketplace Weekend voicemail, and uh, it's quite a doozy. I want to I play this one. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kay. Uh, I've been looking for a job for a couple of years now and have applied to approximately 700 jobs. Yes, 700, yes. And I'm looking for any insight. Um, you know, I've done all the regular things that you could do, so I'm looking for something maybe out of the ordinary. I know that you probably have questions for Kay. I might too, but what do you do when you hear a story like that? What do you think? So I think 700 jobs is a lot, and it makes me wonder if Kay has been focusing on quantity at the expense of quality. You'll usually get better results if you apply to fewer jobs and spend more time tailoring each application to the job. I would also take a fresh look at what is in your resume and whether you're presenting yourself as someone with a track record of getting things done. The mistake that I see people make all the time is having a resume that that reads like their job descriptions read. So just listing off the activities that they did rather than the outcomes they got. The other thing I would look at for Kay is whether he's getting interviews. If he is, then the problem might not be the resume and cover letter, but how he's coming across in interviews. And if that's the case, it could be worth role-playing some interviews with, like if he has a a friend or a family member who's done some hiring and is willing to sit down and do some interview role-playing, that's a pretty good way to get some feedback on how you're coming across. Allison Green runs the site Ask a Manager, and she joins us every month to talk about work-related questions. This uh, this appearance was a bonus round because we got so many questions from you all for her. Uh, if you have questions for Allison, email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org, and you can always find a link to Ask a Manager on our website, which is marketplace.org. Allison, thank you so much. My pleasure. Over the next few weeks across Marketplace, we're going to be talking about taxes. We all pay them, and right now in Washington, there's an effort underway to do some kind of tax reform. What that means is still uncertain. The last time the tax code was overhauled was in 1986, as I mentioned at the top of the show. President Reagan flew around the country stumping for it, and a bill seemed like it might happen, then it fell apart. So a small group of senators started meeting in secret. We met every day for about three to four four hours a day for, I think, 10 or 11 days. And then we'd written the bill. That's former Senator Bill Bradley, a Democrat from New Jersey. He was one of the main authors of the 86 tax bill. And I sat down with him to talk about it. Full disclosure, I worked for him when I was just out of college. So I started by asking Senator Bradley what broad tax principles people in Washington might agree on today. Well, I don't think the principles have changed. If you talk about tax reform as cutting rates and eliminating loopholes, so you're revenue neutral. And we should note for for lay folks, revenue neutral means not adding to the deficit. Yeah, then somebody, some like to cut loopholes more and some like to cut rates more. But in 86, we had a meeting at the White House and I said, 
Mr. President, uh, we're both for tax reform. You're for tax reform because when you were an actor, you paid a 90% marginal tax rate. And I'm for tax reform because a professional basketball player, I was a depreciable asset. And the message there was there was something in this for everybody. Now, we did have some principles. The principles are equal incomes pay equal tax. Not fair to have some people making the same income pay less because they use the loophole. Second, that those who have more should pay more. And third, that the market is a better allocator of resources than members of the Ways and Means Committee and Finance Committee. Well, what does that mean, the market allocates resources better than the Ways and Means Committee? That uh, if I come into the Ways and Means Committee and I say, you know, I want to put in this tax credit for this kind of machine and that kind of place that my brother-in-law has, that benefits my brother-in-law, it doesn't benefit you. So if you instead said, well, let them go out there and get a loan to try to buy the machine, the market allocates the resources. This can be a seriously eyeball-glazing conversation to anyone who's just like, I don't care. Tell me why they should care. Because your hypothetical person is paying more taxes than they would otherwise have to pay if there were no loopholes. Because loopholes only go for some people, not everybody. And so that's the main reason you clean up the tax code. So equal incomes pay equal tax. And so that those who have more pay more. So, I mean, this is a real thing. And it's easy to get to the eyes glaze over if you get into the weeds. Stay high. Stay with the principles. Equal incomes pay equal tax. Those who have more should pay more. Market allocate resources better than members of the Ways and Means Committee. And follow those principles. And then you uh, have a better chance of getting something passed. One of the biggest loopholes that's out there is the mortgage interest deduction. You guys kept that. Was, we, that, a, was that a mistake? You increased it. Was that a mistake? We didn't increase it. But we made a very practical decision. And this was because specific proposals were put out there. In my first uh, bill, we dramatically reduced the mortgage interest deduction. Well, we discovered how important this was, not to 10 people or one company, but to a lot of people out there. You had a there. lot of middle-class voters? A lot of middle-class voters. And so we decided there are three or four things that, you know, we couldn't touch. One was mortgage interest. One was charitable contribution. One was uh, state and local property. One was the uh, in, your 401k plan. Now, we said those, we can't touch those. The mortgage interest tax deduction, however, does disproportionately benefit middle and, and upper income earners. Um, when you think about how unequal a society we are right now, was that a mistake? You mean back in 86? Yeah. No, I don't think so. The year or two after the bill passed, the top 1% were paying more yeah. of the total tax than they were before. Why? Because we eliminated loopholes that they used. Did we eliminate all the loopholes? No. It's a trade-off between a set of principles and political reality. And a really great leader always ends up more on the side of principles than on political reality, which is often an excuse not to make real change. And so, I, I know I was always someone I like to, you know, slay the dragon. I like to go out there and do something that nobody said could be done. And that's what we did in 1986. From where you sit now, and I guess we should note, you, you sit at a, an investment bank. I mean, you sit at a, a, you know, a very prestigious firm here. Uh, 
in Manhattan and you look at what is happening in Washington around tax reform, what do you see? Well, I don't think I don't think we have anything at the moment. I mean, you know, the first thing you got to do is put out a specific proposal. We haven't seen a specific proposal. But is there an argument to be made? I mean, when, when I look back at 86, you did do things in private. You did do things in secret. Yeah. So, I mean, is there an argument to be made that maybe putting a plan out there is, is detrimental to the no, process? No, I think that there were three very specific proposals that people get their heads around and say, I agree with that, I don't agree with that. And the battle took place in that area about those subjects. Until you have something that is out there, tax reform is, uh, you know, the blind date. What is he going to look like? Or how is she going to talk? Let's get the blind date out and see what the bill is. Bill Bradley, thank you very much. Thank you. look at the possibility of tax reform, think about your everyday life. How much do taxes influence your behavior? Maybe you've driven across state lines to avoid paying a tax on alcohol. Or buying a house became more appealing because you knew you'd get a deduction for interest on the mortgage. Taxes can act as a form of social engineering. We wanted to examine how much of a difference they can make and whether people even notice. So we brought in Chuck Swenson. He's an expert on taxes and a professor at the USC Marshall School of Business. Welcome to the show. Thank you. There is always a debate when taxes are being discussed in Washington, particularly on a kind of big overhaul level, about whether or not tax policy works as a form of social engineering. After all, we are both giving credits and providing incentives and disincentives for people and businesses to do things. Does tax policy change the way we behave? It really depends on who you're looking at and the type of policy. So, for example, businesses, particularly larger corporations, pretty much are sophisticated and understand what the mechanism is and are able to do cost-benefit sorts of analyses and determine whether they're going to use or be disincentivized by the program. For smaller businesses and individuals, there tends to be a little less effectiveness for a number of reasons. One would be people um, just don't get the information that they need. Part of that is filled by the press, by by you guys. Yeah. Part is, part is filled by the private sector. So, for example, consultants. And then also, the, for example, vendors themselves. So just as an example... There are tax incentives for solar power, and so people who – companies that do that kind of publicize that. Another reason why uh, such policies for individuals and uh, for smaller companies may be ineffective are sticky habits. For example, in the past, we've had disincentives for things like uh, soft drinks and snack tax, alcohol and cigarettes and that sort of thing. And even though people are generally aware of them, they're, uh, it's hard to change habits. So a smoker is not going to quit because the, the price of cigarettes goes up to 14 bucks a pack. And we, we've seen that, actually. It really doesn't change that much. Um, at some point, there might be a tipping point where they'll switch to something like vaping or, or something else. The big one, which kind of fascinates me, is kind of cognitive limitations. There's been a lot of, uh, putting on my economist hat now, there's been a lot of research in how individuals just don't grasp how these tax policies actually work. They they can't do the math or they just don't want to do the work to kind of figure out how these things will, will affect them. A big example of that, there was an experiment a couple – about 10 years ago where these researchers 
they looked at two grocery stores, and on one of them, they actually posted what the sales tax would be when they got to the counter on everything, and the other one was uh, the regular way. So when you go to the counter, you pay the sales tax afterwards. When people had the the sales tax made aware to them, they actually took that into effect in their and how much they spent and spent a little bit less. Sometimes governments kind of overestimate how well people can think through and do the math and and and. Um, sort of digest what the implications of, of, of an incentive or a disincentive are to them. The conservative argument against a lot of this is that this is not the purpose of taxes. The taxes exist purely to raise revenue for the government. It seems like we don't as a country know exactly what we want our tax system to do. It's certainly in a political debate. If you go back to who a lot of people regard as the founding father of econo- modern economics, Adam Smith, he actually laid out the kind of goals of an ideal taxing system, and they're actually, it's actually multifaceted. Raising revenue has, of course, been important because that's our only source of revenue is for a government. I mean, we can borrow money, but we have to pay it back. There is also policy objectives that you want to, um, to put into place. So, Lizzie, you're asking about incentives and disincentives, and sometimes those will pop up here and there that – for example, right now there's a big incentive towards um, energy sufficiency and green economy, and so that's been a, a big push lately, or to discourage big companies having offshore corporations. There's now some effort at the um, OECD to um, to discourage that, and so those have to be there has to be enough flexibility to respond to the economic needs of the time. There really are multi-attributes of a taxing system. The, the primary one, of course, is to raise revenue, but other things are, are equally important. Chuck Swenson, professor at USC's Marshall School of Business. Thanks for talking with me. You're welcome. This story is about something sweet, sticky, and worth $335 million as an industry. Honey. Here in the U.S., we now consume a half pound more of it per person per year than we did back in 1990. But in some states, like Montana, all that honey can come at a cost. The lives of black bears. Beekeepers can legally shoot the bears to protect their investment, which is causing some controversy. Nate Hedgie from Montana Public Radio has our story. It's a sweltering spring day near Missoula, Montana, and Bert Wussner is pulling honeycombs out of a beehive. His daughter is pumping smoke into the hive to keep the bees calm, but they're swarming around my microphone, my bare legs, and I'm really hoping I don't get stung. You're not nervous, are you? A little. I'll, I'll I'll be honest. I'm a little nervous. He gives one of the combs a little shake and droplets of nectar fall out. Shakes out just like rain. That's brand new honey. And honey is how Wissner makes his living. He's a commercial beekeeper and he leases about 50 bee yards in western Montana. Almost all of them are secured with reams of solar-powered electric fence. It's there to keep black bears out. They love beehives. And Jamie Jonkel, a bear manager for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, says placing a beehive on the ground in Montana... It's sort of like putting a dead horse out in the back pasture and expecting bears not to feed on that dead horse. So Jonkel encourages all beekeepers to surround their yards with electric fence, which deters bears. But they aren't required by law here in Montana. Instead, the law says a beekeeper can kill a black bear if it attacks their hives. I had to kill one last year. That's Bert Wussner, the commercial beekeeper. It was in a big stockpile yard with over 800 hives, and I could not 
put a hot wire around that many bees. You can see the size of this yard is only 24 hives. Imagine 800 spread out from here to almost as far as you can see. He says it's unfortunate the bear died. But imagine a rancher and, and something's killing all his sheep or his cows. I mean, it's the same situation. Bees are actually taxed as livestock in the state of Montana. And so I'm just protecting my livestock and just like any other rancher or farmer would do. As Wussner said, bees are considered livestock by the state of Montana, right up there with cattle, horses, and sheep. Each hive can produce a couple hundred dollars worth of honey, so when a black bear attacks a hive, a beekeeper can defend it, lethally. And this bothers John Griffin, director of the Urban Wildlife Center for the Humane Society of the United States. It's a real travesty when bears are lethal control for, for something they cannot avoid. Unlike other states, such as Maryland, electric fences aren't required by law in Montana. And Griffin thinks they should be. It not only prevents unnecessary killing, but it provides you know, better and more effective long-term solutions. So it's better for the person with the beehive, and just as it's better for you know, the environment and not, and not having to, to kill the bear. Over the past five years, black bears have damaged more than 600 hives across Montana, costing beekeepers nearly $150,000. That's why most commercial beekeepers in the state do a good job of securing their yards with electric fencing anyways. It's part of the cost of doing business, says Bert Wissner. I have better things to do than, you know, trying to fight some bears. You know, I'd rather just be able to sleep at night and not have to worry about it. To date, Wissner says he spent thousands of dollars securing his bee yards. And Jared Marley, director of Margo Supplies, a wildlife management company, says building electric fences for beekeepers in bear country is a growing part of his business. We're realizing that electric fencing is, it's not just the environmental way to solve uh, bear damage, but it's also just simply the most effective way to prevent bear damage. But Wissner says occasionally those fences will fail, or he just has too many beehives to secure. And in those rare cases, he believes the current law in Montana allowing him to kill a black bear is necessary. And if somebody says, hey, you can't kill a black bear in your bees and you have no other choice, what are you going to do? While there's no state database that says how many black bears are killed by beekeepers in Montana, the animals aren't endangered and their populations are doing well, the three bear managers I spoke with said on average between one and five are shot in their regions every year. And that number is actually pretty low, considering there are thousands of black bears in the state and thousands of registered bee yards. Jamie Jonkel chalks it up to electric fencing. As we get into Wissner's truck, I notice a sticker of a wolf in crosshairs on his window. Wolves threaten cattle and sheep in the American West, and bears, they threaten bees. And as we're sitting in the quiet of his pickup truck, Wissner turns to me. He says he's concerned the story I'm doing may paint him in a bad light. Because one bear is killed... Oh, beekeepers are killing them all the time. It's simply not true. This is crazy. When lions get into people's stuff and they're killing their pets, they make no hesitation to call the fish and game and have somebody destroy it. I mean, it happens a lot. Way more than the bears that beekeepers kill. (laughs) I'm telling you. The lions he's referring to are mountain lions, which kill cats and dogs in the American West. And what he said was true last year and in 2012. Data for other years is not easily accessible. For Marketplace, I'm Nate Hedgie in Missoula, Montana. When it comes to products, clothes, shoes, home goods, 
pretty much anything, there is no shortage of celebrity endorsements. Hello, Foreman Grill. But this month, pop superstar Rihanna added her name to the world of makeup with Fenty Beauty. And its foundation comes in 40 shades. Women of color have been singing Rihanna's praises. Here's Ashley Weatherford, a senior beauty editor at New York Magazine's The Cut. She has this, like, widespread reach, so that's one thing. But also, I think she has this appeal to, you know, sort of get people energized about beauty. And not only that, but the makeup is good. And it's a lot of makeup, too. So why is Fenty such a game changer? Our producer, Peter Balanon-Rosen, went to find out. Okay, first, a disclaimer. I don't know, like, anything about makeup. So what, what is this stuff? Liquid foundation. And what is this? So that one is a highlighter. You're like, what is that? You seem confused. Well, that's because I was. Okay, and wait, I think I know what this one is. Is, that, is this blush? No, it's not. <laughs> I thought that was what we used when I was in plays in high school. No, it is not. Luckily, I had some help figuring out these little tubes and cases. So my name is Etzel Eccleson, and I'm a New York-based makeup artist. She works in TV. We meet up at a store so she can show me the latest craze. So this is the Fenty Foundation, which is actually by Rihanna. Okay, in case you've been living under a rock, we're talking about this Rihanna. Bad girl Riri. Pop star extraordinaire Rihanna, born Robin Fenty. And this makeup line that carries her last name, it comes in 40 shades, which is a big deal. Eccleston says it's hard for black and brown women to find makeup that looks good and doesn't break the bank. What do you usually wear? You usually wear more of a liquid or the cream one? I typically actually do a cream. With brushes and makeup in hand, Eccleston gets to work putting Fenty foundation on a friend. So if you look directly into her face and into her chest area, it's one color. Usually what you would have to do, two or three colors. Basically buying two or three products at, say, the drugstore and mixing them to get the right skin tone. Then it gets really expensive. Fenty's 40 shades of foundation cost 34 bucks a pop. It's more expensive than those drugstore brands, but cheaper than other high-end options. And it has products in colors black and brown women can't find elsewhere. As a woman of color, you tend to always have that issue. But Mike Ogunrinu is Eccleston's friend who's getting her makeup done. It's nice to have a line that came out specifically, not to just care to people who have deeper skin tones, but everyone. <laughs> it just keeps selling out, though. It's a hot product. Fenty sells out online. At Sephora, shelves sit empty. And when stores do get some in, crowds mob the display. The frenzy was real. And it still is. Which begs the question, what do people see in this stuff? Eccleston, the makeup artist, says a lot is in the messaging. Because of the fact that it is Rihanna, this is going to be amazing. Or simply that it's for them. Fenty's marketing's all about inclusion. Diversity isn't an add-on. It's the soul of the product. Or at least that's what the online ads for the 40 Shades seem to say. She has everybody within that ad. She killed it in that ad. She had Muslim women. She had African-American women. She had Caucasian women. But for Riri to stay on top, she needs, well, I'll let her tell you. That's right, brand loyalty. Outside the store, Eccleston thinks she'll have it. Sephora better hurry up and get a lot of this in stock because coming Christmas time, I could only imagine how it's going to be crazy. Fenty will have products like eyeshadow and mascara then. 
Eccleston hopes other brands see Fenty's success and make makeup for women of color more accessible. The fact that it wasn't till now, she says, sent a message to people. Not only was it hopeless, but they felt that somebody couldn't relate to them. Now she says it's less hopeless. And she, well, loves that. For Marketplace Weekend, I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen. Here at Marketplace Weekend, we often ask people in the spotlight, musicians, actors, artists, to tell us about their financial lives and what they've learned in their careers. It's a segment we call the Marketplace Quiz. This week's guest sat down with our producer, Eliza Mills. I'm Gucci Mang, Radrick Davis. My job title would be entertainer, performer, or rapper. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you. Ferraris. I done had two before, and I got one ordered. So this will be my third one next year. In your next life, what would your career be? Philosopher. I just feel like I'm unique. I just got a weird way of thinking, and um, I feel like in another life, I would love to share it with the world. Do you feel like you sort of share it with the world already? I do, but it'd be great if I was, like, known as the great Aristotle but Gucci. What's the hardest thing about your job that not many people know about? Um, The hardest thing about my job to me is um, just the time away from, you know, your family. I guess the road, you know, being on the road for weeks at a time is is, is challenging. It's it's tough on the body, going back and forth in the airplane and um, just, you know, getting out of your routine. The traveling, is sometimes it can be rough. What is something that you bought that you now completely regret buying? I don't know if I bought anything, but I did a lot of gambling back in the day that I regret doing. I used to go to Vegas and I gambled a lot of money that I wish I still had. Never, I wish I never gambled that money. Shooting dice, playing blackjack. <laughs> and you'd take it back if you could? <laughs> yeah, I definitely would take that back. That's something that I, you know, a lot of times I lost a lot of money back then just having, just going too hard. When did you first realize that rapping could be a career for you? I guess after I made a couple of songs and played them, you know, played them for some people and they... They were like, it's good, it got potential, and they just was blown away about it. And they kind of, um, they gave me an encouragement to keep recording and keep trying to get better. Before I was rapping, uh, I was going to school. I, well, I was, I was enrolled in school. I was hustling, honestly. What is your most prized possession? My book. I'm super proud of that book. You know, I wrote it myself. I wrote it in prison, uh... I just feel like it's a dope accomplishment to say, you know, I, I'm an author now. I done made so many CDs, so many mixtapes, but I told my story. I didn't die and let nobody else tell it for me. I told it, you know, while I was here. It just shows me that I'm evolving. I'm, I'm progressing. What was your very first job? I think my first job was, oh, 100% picking up, recycling cans. Picking up cans, recycling them, putting dirt in them to make them heavier. And take them to the can, man. You know, you put a little dirt, a little gravel in there, kind of make it way more. You crush it. It's it's a trick of the trade. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little extra on top of that. Yeah, just just a little more. It just, it it add up at the end. How old were you? Nine. 
made like sixty, seventy dollars. It was me and me and like uh, my homeboy OJ. That's how we we actually met one of my most common collaborators, and uh, and we would just we'll pick them up and we'll take them to the store, and they would pay us, and we'll split the money. It'd probably be like a hundred dollars split between two, three people. You know, forty, fifty dollars some days, something like that. What is something that everyone should own, no matter the cost? A car. If all this fails, you know, if public transportation, what if you had to, you know, take a trip cross country or it's an emergency? You can't, sometimes it just comes in handy to have your own vehicle so you don't have to rely on nobody else. What advice do you wish that someone had given you before you started your career? I wish somebody would have told me that it's not going to be easy, no matter what, just try to be resilient and keep pushing. When I give advice to people, I be telling them, like, they be like, it's hard. I be like... You know, find a way, make it happen, you know, get over it, you know. It's challenging trying to be a superstar, trying, you know, to reach that next level, but just embrace the challenge and just keep going. I want to play a clip from one of your songs. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you about it. Alright, so you're a financial advisor. Can you make us wiser? What's a piece of financial advice that you would give? Stack your money. You know, so many people always try to give me advice and be like, you should invest in this or you should invest in real estate or the next tech thing or something like that. But my strategy is, is you know, sometimes just have a lot of, just have the money, just have it. Just put it up. Sometimes you don't even got to invest it. Just stack it through the roof. Gucci Mane has a new book out, The Autobiography of Gucci Mane. You can listen back to some of our past quizzes. Just go to Marketplace.org and tell us who you want to take the Marketplace quiz. Our email is weekend at Marketplace.org. Coming up on Marketplace. Yes, it has been a terrible hurricane year. But it's also been a tough season for wildfires in the western United States, which has taken a toll on one of the West's fine products, wine. Here's reporter Molly Solomon. Thomas Hennickling is the director of the Viticulture and Enology Department of Washington State University. His department is the only one in the country leading research on what happens when grapes are exposed to smoke for extended periods of time. He says more often, they develop a certain taste or smell called smoke taint. These Wine taints are described as sometimes campfire, but also ashtray. So those aromas, of course, are not attractive in a wine. Wine with a hint of ashtray, anyone? More on this story on Marketplace with Kai Rizdahl next week. And on the next Marketplace Weekend, we talk retirement, 401ks, and Social Security with one of the biggest CEOs in the business. Are you prepared for life after work? And that is it for this week's Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Bellman Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Satara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. And Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.